This is not the media. This is hell. I love the way Johnny Cash says, look at them beans. The people of Chile have protested for years against the dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet, which is enshrined in the Chilean constitution. You know, the dictatorship that the United States imposed upon the people of Chile through a CIA-backed coup to overthrow the democratically elected leader of Chile, Salvador Allende, back in on the original 9-11 in 1973, which was also, you know, a terrorist act. You know how in the United States, Henry Kissinger is lauded as the greatest diplomat the United States has ever had, and how every Secretary of State since Kissinger has some connection to Kissinger. And when he dies, Kissinger will be depicted as an American hero throughout the U.S. media, and every politician from right to left will be saying he was a hero. Remember, he also toppled democracies. He interfered with democracy around the world. You want to know why they hate us? Just look at the life of Henry Kissinger. Yes, the U.S. has been interfering in other nations' democratic elections for a very, very long time. Yet somehow it's not hypocritical for the United States to complain about Russia interfering in our election. And the media never points out that the U.S. has a very long history of undermining votes and interfering with and overthrowing democracies by force if needed. But this is not the media. This is hell. So we will be discussing in depth last weekend's vote in Chile to rewrite the country's constitution. Constitution, an undemocratic document forced on the Chilean people by a U.S.-backed dictator who overthrew the democratically elected president at the behest of that great American hero, Hamron Hank Kissinger. Today, we will have the return of writer Bree Busk, who posted the Roar magazine article just before last weekend's vote, Chileans mobilize in advance of a historic plebiscite. Bree is an American anarchist living and working in Santiago, Chile. She uh, currently practices her politics through her neighborhood assembly and the Brigada Laura Rodig, CF8M, a feminist art and propaganda group that interviews, er, sorry, intervenes in public space through direct action. This is Bree's third appearance on This Is Hell, having been on twice last year. Last time we spoke with Bree was... Exactly one year ago tomorrow, when the protests had just started, when we talked about her then-just-posted Roar magazine article, Chileans stand fearless in the face of repression. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed live stream radio podcast host, Chuck Mertz, producing, as always, Alex Jerry. Alex, please remind us, what's this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, how are you scaring the children in your neighborhood this weekend? How are you scaring the children in your neighborhood this weekend? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins our new Graham Black This Is Hell t-shirt. You can check out the new Graham Black This Is Hell t-shirt by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you can find all the ways that you can support completely listener supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing, so thanks to you for all of your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But you have to have your answer in by the end of today's show because we will be announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. During this week's moment, Jeff takes another stab at the advertising culture. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell. Again, how are you frightening children in your neighborhood this weekend? How are you frightening children in your neighborhood this weekend? Following our guest... Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. We got some email overnight that I wanted to touch on quickly before we get to Bree. And you know what? I need a sip of water, so just give me one second. Ah, the natural sound of that gurgling must have been good. So we got an email last night, uh, and I want to make sure we get to it before we get to Bree. Calvin we have not heard from in a while, emailed saying, hey, fellas, hope you're both doing well. I'm like a week and a half behind on the show, so I'm really not sure. And Calvin's right. If you haven't heard from someone in a week and a half and 10 days or less, under the pandemic, you really have no clue where their head is. Calvin continues, I wanted to drop a quick note to say thanks for continuing to put in all the hard work it takes to keep me miserably informed of Hell's current landscape and to throw out a possible guest suggestion. In my free time between law school and work, I've been attempting to keep my brain washed clean of typical law school ideology by reading Gritya Bear's The Corporation, Law, and Capitalism. The book is absolutely fantastic, i.e. hellish. So far, at least, and I think they would make a great guest for the show. Their chapter regarding how the West, despite acknowledging the war was initially one of imperialist economic expansion, 
failed to prosecute German and Japanese corporations for their role in planning and waging the Second World War were particularly informative and terribly depressing. Perfect for This Is Hell. Calvin, that does sound amazing. And yes, we will follow up on your suggestion because the long U.S. history of not holding war criminals responsible for their crimes, aside from Nuremberg, is very, very, very disturbing. Calvin also writes on an unrelated note, although I didn't have, I don't have a ton of time, uh, free time during the school year. You can put me down as interested in helping with the show remotely. I have some extremely heavy emphasis on some experience mixing, editing, and mastering audio, primarily music, and would be happy to try to assist with that side of things if y'all ever need a hand. Anyways, stay classy and be well in solidarity and stuff, Calvin. Thanks, Calvin, and we will be contacting you and everyone who has offered their support. If you have not heard, yes, we are looking for volunteer board operators who can show up for our 10 a.m. daily show here at our studios above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. And we're looking for those who can work regularly one, two, three, or more times a month or even a week to run the board like Alex does, like Richard does, and like Alex has trained both Daphne and Jess in the last few weeks. We're very flexible, and if you can only do it weekly or a couple times a month, we can work within your schedule. This position does come with a very modest stipend, so keep that in mind as well. This is also your chance to have access to a professional studio for your own projects as well. If you have your own podcast idea or sound projects of any kind, you get access to our studio. So, if you are interested in becoming a board operator here on This Is Hell, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. But as Calvin points out, we are also looking for those who do not live in the Chicago area and can help out remotely. If you are interested in being part of This Is Hell but do not live in the Chicago area, email me again, chuck at thisishell.com and we will contact you shortly about the work we desperately need done. Coming up, Chileans vote for a new constitution. We'll also have Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth during this week's moment. Jeff takes another stab at the advertising culture. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, how are you frightening children in your neighborhood this weekend? How are you frightening children in your neighborhood this weekend? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell gets our new gray on black This Is Hell t-shirt with our logo in gray, which you can see right now by going to our site, thisishell.com, and clicking on support. Speaking of which, there may be a couple of new things added over the weekend, so you might want to keep going back and checking at thisishell.com and clicking on support to see... What's new in our merchandise crap area? You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we have to have your response in by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Live from late capitalism where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. Since September 11th, 1973, the Chilean people have suffered under a dictatorship whose legacy includes an undemocratic constitution that even after the dictatorship ended and democracy was achieved, still stood in bold contrast to whatever democracy Chile was experiencing. Then last weekend, after a long struggle and a year of protest, Chileans finally got their chance to vote on whether or not to rewrite that constitution. And they made history. Here to tell us what they voted, why they voted for a new constitution in Chile and what that means for Chileans, the region and the world returning to this is how writer Bree Busk posted the Roar magazine article Chileans mobilize in advance of a historic plebiscite which she posted just before the vote welcome back to this is hell Bree oh I'm so happy to be here Bree this is your third appearance on the show and the last time you were on was October 30th of last year, almost one year exactly to the date. I knew it was pretty close. I knew that the last time we talked to you was in October. I didn't know it was almost exactly one year. Bree is an American anarchist living and working in Santiago, Chile. She currently practices her politics through her neighborhood assembly and the Brigada Laura Rodig CF8M, a feminist art and propaganda group that intervenes in public space through direct action. So, Bree, let me just start with something really simple. 78% of Chileans voted to rewrite the Constitution. Did that overwhelming support to change the Constitution, did that surprise you? I think it did. I mean, in general, I think a lot of us were expecting for the momentum to be behind our cause. 
that we would vote to change uh, the constitution. But I think that everyone was left uh, a little bit in shock that we were able to win such a like overwhelming landslide of a majority. And um, I think one of my favorite online jokes that I saw circulating afterwards was um, someone who from the right wing posting, oh, uh, were we all bots after all? <laughs> <laughs> they were expecting to have a larger percentage in the vote. So uh, with that large percentage, 78 percent, what I was fearing is that it was going to be something like 52-48, 55-45, and then the far right could claim that the vote was rigged or that something was inappropriate and that it would lead to, you talk about how there's a whole bunch of homegrown Nazis that have been revealed by the pandemic and by the Constitution plebiscite. So my fear was that there was going to be violence following the election. How do you think that 78% total affects the reaction that people are having to the election. Do you think that means that there's far less chance that there will be any kind of violent crackdown, or does that not guarantee protecting protesters? Well, the violent crackdown that we've been living under since last October hasn't changed. If we go out to protest now, we're still going to be facing the same conditions. Uh, However, I do think that uh, we were able to witness the right wing, like the institutional right wing, doing an immediate change of strategy because they were, uh, until not so long ago, saying that, yes, our our vision is going to be the one that ultimately succeeds. But now they're like, uh, no, we actually, we love democracy. Let's focus on uh, participating in the process for uh, drafting the new constitution. So their new strategy is to adapt to the moment and to see how many reforms they can stop through this new process. So this is just an attempt by them to co-opt the rewriting of the Constitution then, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. So what did, well, uh, let me, not, I don't know. Did the vote, did the 75, 78% total, did that surprise establishment media and politicians? When you saw the vote come in, what was the reaction from the establishment? Well, I think that they knew the writing was, uh, was on the wall for a while. There was so much more overwhelming momentum in favor of like the approval campaign um, that I think they were prepared for this outcome, even though it wasn't the one that they were hoping for. And so they were already ready to position themselves to take a new tactic, right? Uh, But for our side, you could see that people were overwhelmed with joy running out into the streets and uh, celebrating at uh, Dignity Plaza. So I want to ask you two, I'm going to ask you two questions at once, and I apologize for doing that, but because I, I want you to separate these into two different categories. What did protesters and then voters dislike most about the Chilean constitution? constitution? And what reforms do you think the right-wing government fear the most? Well, it's a big question. I think we're all becoming constitutional scholars really quickly. I think that process started about a year ago and continues to this day. So wait, in Chile, uh, so in Chile now, you're all constitutional scholars and epidemiologists? Uh, maybe less so. Okay, all right. <laughs> Probably the conversation is far more uh, about the Constitution and constitutional law than it is about uh, uh public health practices, but that's there too. But okay, so the main issue with the constitution is on the surface level, it's easy to say anything created under a dictatorship should be suspect, right? That's like the easy answer, but it goes much deeper than that because not only was this constitution drafted under a dictatorship, but it was drafted without uh, public participation. So it was undemocratic, even within an extremely undemocratic context. So second of all, the Constitution was designed to make it very difficult to change the Constitution. It's like self-protecting. So you need to have majorities so high to make substantial changes that it basically gives the right wing a veto of any major reform uh, no matter that they're minor, that they are in the minority, right? So, 
that has been a really big challenge because they say, oh, we're under democracy now, we can make amendments. But the most progressive of those amendments would be blocked by the right-wing minority, no matter what they are. So it really prevented substantial change from taking place through the current Congress or governmental structure. And that's an important point to make because that rule is still in effect. We are going to be carrying out the process of drafting a new constitution, following the rules of the dictatorship era constitution. Right? And that's going to provide a lot of uh, stumbling blocks for us going forward. So for question part two, what are the things that people would really like to change? I think um, obviously all of the neoliberal economic um, policies that are really enshrined in the Constitution. For example, uh, the privatization of water. That's a big one. Uh, also privatization in the area of health and education and the pension system, of course. So those are the areas that you see in like slogans over and over and over. But that doesn't mean that people aren't talking about other issues. You just mentioned neoliberalism. <clears throat> to you, what explains why women are at the forefront of the protests against neoliberalism? Because you write, uh, on March 8th, the movement had roared back to life after a brief respite over the Chilean summer, mobilizing millions for a historic International Working Women's Day march. The Chilean feminist movement has long been at the forefront of the struggle against neoliberalism and state violence. And on that day, the typical feminist chants were interwoven with overlapping courses of a football chant popularized during the pro protest, during the revolt. Piñera, that's uh, President Sebastian Piñera. Piñera, you MFR, you're a killer, just like Pinochet. To you, what explains why women are at that forefront of the protests against neoliberalism? Uh, first of all, let me tell you how much I enjoyed translating that chant into English. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always trying to think of that because, you know, people have some amazing uh, chants and songs here. But, well... This is one of those answers that could take a year to explain, right? You could go pretty deep into the political theory. But from my personal perspective, I would say feminism is the powerhouse it is today because of, I don't know, about the decisions the movement has made going forward. Right? So when we had our most recent uh, wave of activity within the movement, starting in uh, 2018, it was a decision uh, from the very beginning to understand um, the feminist struggle and experience as not being defined by um, just the surface. It's not about like whether we shave our legs or not. And of course it is about things like street harassment, about workplace discrimination. But in our view, in the view of this movement, the real discrimination that women experience has at its heart, like the precarity and violence that's generated by capitalism and by uh, authoritarianism. So in our situation, we find that, yes, of course, we need to talk about individual violence, interpersonal violence and gender violence, but we also need to talk about systemic violence. And it was our decision from the beginning to put that at the heart of how we organize, to understand that we need to organize against uh, systemic violence, the violence of making people poor, the violence of uh, not giving people health care. And the feminist movement over the subsequent years has really been a catalytic force that has woken up and um, re-energized a lot of the other social movements. Because feminism is something that exists in every struggle, women are everywhere, it means that feminism can be a type of, uh, type of glue to hold these movements together and give them a sort of connective force. And we've seen that. We've seen other uh, social movements get stronger in this period, and really it all crescendoed with an uprising. So I don't think it's any surprise that uh, the feminist movement here continues to be a significant voice in this process. But how can that protest continue? We talked to you a year ago when the protests were starting. So like five months later, then you have a pandemic and you have a lockdown in Santiago and throughout Chile. So how can protests, how can working 
toward a radical political transformation happened during a pandemic? How much harm did the virus, do you think, how much harm did it do to the movement? Or do you think that the virus kind of revealed the inequalities of uh, Chile and helped the movement? Well, I think that we were all well aware of the inequalities, but certainly they were further exposed during the pandemic. Um, We also got to have yet another opportunity to criticize the government, right, with the idea of using um, militarized lockdowns instead of robust public health policy, right? But it's true that we were not able to sustain a street protest for our health and uh, to protect each other. However, I was happy to see that after maybe a few weeks of feeling a little lost, people started to adapt to the new reality. Like the popular assemblies that used to meet in, um, in public squares or parks moved into Zoom meetings. And people found different creative methods to kind of keep things alive and to maintain the organization and networks of solidarity. I would also say that the practice of solidarity and mutual aid became a real animating force. You know, this is not the first time where Chileans have experienced like shortages of food. And we have methods for that. We had uh, ollas comunes, which are like community soup kitchens set up on a neighborhood level. there were constant fundraising, like popular fundraising efforts to make sure that food and resources were flowing to the people that needed it the most. Like um, the main slogan of uh, that period in that work was like, only the people helps the people, focusing on how solidarity is what really keeps us alive, not like the meager, um, the meager uh, assistance programs that the government tried to carry out. I find that fascinating. So the protesters had kind of prepared people for, even though they, you know, you don't know that a pandemic is coming, but prepared people for crisis by having solidarity uh, with among amongst each other. And so that makes me just wonder how much or, or how does neoliberalism affect the government's response to the virus? Here you are practicing solidarity and it uh, sets you up to have processes like mutual aid. So from the government's perspective, how did neoliberalism affect their response to the virus? Well, it's a big question. Um, I can say that the government didn't do as badly as some other governments. Um, We didn't have that sort of uh, phenomenon that you saw in Brazil and in the US where you have the right wing telling you that it doesn't exist and not to wear masks. So that was something. However, um, I think that the government definitely took a while to react and that way too prematurely, there was a desire to uh, keep the malls open when they shouldn't be open. Like there's definitely been that sort of, we must keep the economy running at any cost uh, perspective. And I think that that was damaging and they had to eventually roll some of their um, uh, openings back because of the consequences of that. I think you can definitely see neoliberalism maybe the most in how the um, the sort of aid and relief programs were run. So um, there were a lot of people that were left out uh, of receiving aid. Like for example, I'm an independent worker and I received a few forms of aid because I'm a low income. So first is I received the offer of getting some of my um, tax return from next year in advance. So the government gave me permission to use my own money. So I feel like that's pretty neoliberal. (laughs) Uh, Even worse, the second offer I received is they said that they would give me a loan. Uh, Say I could have an interest-free loan of not too much money and that I would have to pay it back in three years. And I was like, wow, the government is being very nice about letting me use my own money in this crisis. (laughs) And then finally, I received uh, two food aid boxes, which, of course, I donated because I'm not that hard up. But um, 
the system of food distribution was not well organized, was not substantial, and there was a lot of controversy around what people were actually getting. Like, the food support systems here are actually less robust than they are in the U.S. Like, we don't have this free lunch program happening here. So the students uh, who would normally depend on the sort of food or discounted uh, food that they would be able to receive during the school year were receiving almost nothing or food that wasn't in good condition or wasn't sufficient. So I feel like the government gave the worst it could give, really. You write that the country's most vulnerable felt completely abandoned by their government, a feeling that was not alleviated by the arrival of small government relief checks and occasional food deliveries. During the hunger protests, one participant held a sign that read the Piñera virus is deadlier than the coronavirus. Is is that fair? Is that accurate? Was the government somehow hindered or limited in their ability to respond to the virus because of a lack of resources? Were they unable to help the country's most vulnerable because they were un- unable to do so because of a lack of resources? Or did they just not care? I would say they're just terrible at their jobs. <laughs> okay. And they came uh, came up with bad ideas and bad implementation. Even with what they did offer, it could have been better organized. You say that they but, they yeah, actually you, you're saying that they you also say that they underestimated how poorly uh, they how bad the virus would be and what the impact would be on the most vulnerable to you. What explains that underestimation? You know, I think that at its heart, on the deepest level, we have such a divide between the rich and poor in this country that if you are someone like the public health minister who you're uh, we're quoting, you are living a life apart you are not seeing the reality that most people experience in this country. You could live your whole life in a bubble, not really understanding the country that you're living in. And in a way, I almost believe them when they say they didn't understand that things were so bad, because not only do they not want to see that, but they've, they haven't had to encounter it, right? They're really leading a different life. They're living in a different Chile than the rest of us. You write how since March 18th, Piñera has relied on these emergency powers to establish a curfew, set up so-called sanitary cordons uh, around hot spots, and implement a confusing system of permits and checkpoints for quarantine zones with harsh punishment for violators. It was clear to those already critical of the government's authoritarian behavior during the uprising that the restrictions were less about public health than about maintaining control of a population simmering with discontent. You also point out that the state of exception was extended two times, first in June when the cases were spiking, which I guess could make sense, and again in September when the curve had flattened. Why the state of exception when the curve flattened? Was the rationalization summer was coming and a fear of spread? Why? Uh, I mean, I understand uh, extending it during when the uh, coronavirus is spiking, but why when the curve flattened? Well, I think that it's worth questioning why we had this type of state of exception before also, because uh, the state of exception exists to uh, give the government special powers in order to control things during an emergency. Okay, that does make sense. But the main uh, response that the government provided was to deploy the military and to limit public gatherings. And you can say, ah, but limiting public gatherings is something important during a pandemic, of course. But to use the military as your main public health intervention is highly suspect. People were often like make jokes and say things like, you know, what does a machine gun have to do with uh, public health? And in practice, It was more about using the police and military to crack down on uh, people who were out on the streets, not necessarily for protests, but maybe people who were hanging out in a park, having like a neighborhood barbecue, something like that. And it wasn't to protect these people. It was to criminalize these people. So really, like the actions under the state of exception were an extension of the authoritarian practices that the government had already escalated to during uh, last year's uprising. Of course, so there was um, the final extension 
And the idea was uh, to be able to extend it so the emergency powers would stay in the hands of the administration uh, for the period where we would um, commemorate the anniversary of the uprising on October 18th, and also for the plebiscite itself on the 25th. So it was inevitable that there would be rowdy protests on the anniversary. And depending on the results, that there could be some sort of, I don't know, protest, celebration, something on the 25th that they would also want uh, the power to legally limit. So you also write about the electoral TV spots in opposition to rewriting the Constitution and how they evoke an image of a unified Chile with a practical outlook on improving an already decent system. This stands in contrast with the movement on the streets where homegrown Nazis, as I was mentioning earlier, and other extremists have also adhered to the campaign. Why would homegrown Nazis be attracted to the campaign to reject a new constitution? What is attractive to Nazis in the Chilean constitution? Because I think that reveals a lot about the Chilean constitution. Well, yeah, absolutely. But I think uh, part of it is, of course, they want to hold on to the legacy of the dictatorship. You know, there are plenty of people who are still Pinochet fans. You will see people, you know, with... um, even in English language helicopter rides, uh, t-shirts in some of these Nazi marches. So they are, on one hand, they are not ashamed about saying what they support and they would love a return of fascism, essentially. Uh, However, there are are other forces who like the idea of having um, the right wing be able to maintain an influential position going forward. Um, maybe the biggest issue would be the economic one. Um, uh, this is something I've begin, begun to hear in the U.S. context now is that, uh, you know, if we change the Constitution, if um, the process is approved, we are going to turn into Venezuela. Right? This is like the slogan that you hear over and over again, is that a change in the cost- Constitution is going to open the door to socialism, and we are going to lose all of the good capitalist things that we have now. And by we, I mean a fraction of the population that continues to uh, hold power, uh, both economically and in terms of representation in government. So it it just wouldn't seem like that would be that popular of a position to have that you want to return to a dictatorship. You write with the recent intensification of the Mapuche struggle in the South, the public's appetite for racist violence has increased and organized fascists have seized on that opportunity to carry out street actions on a level that has not been seen in decades. These are the indigenous people in Chile. How is racism against the Mapuche? How is that institutionalized in Chile's constitution? Well, just like in the U.S., you know, the original sin of the founding of this country is, you know, the murder, oppression and displacement of the people who are already here. Right. So, you know, um, the conflict has never stopped. Right. Since colonization. Right. And that means that there is always uh, a low level of conflict between agents of the state and organized Mapuches in the south. Um However, this period, there was a a spike in the level of conflict. And this can also be from on the government side, the murder of Mapuche people. There have been a lot of high profile cases around that where people were killed under very dubious circumstances. And these deaths or murders were covered up or misrepresented. And... Also, one of the tactics for of this conflict is stopping or burning trucks or transporting things uh, through that region. So you could see it's pretty intense, you know, with um, fires and with killings. So the people who are not Mapuche or people who want to um, expand and do their business on uh, in Mapuche territory, they have often like these racist beliefs. They say that Mapuches are criminals, that they uh, are all arsonists and that they need to be moved or all put in jail. And you got to see this year, like during um, 
during, well, what was our winter and your summer that there were actually like racist protests and it was terrifying. It was like, there have always been these like individual acts of racism, violence, but to be able to see it like mobilized in that form was definitely something new. And you, uh, you write that by stepping in to impose their own structure, the parties, because the, the d- different political parties try to essentially co-opt the entire situation and you even point out, uh, you have, even have a criticism of the institutional left within, uh, within uh, Chile that I want to talk about in a second. But you write, by stepping in to impose their own structure, the parties had overrun the efforts to generate a popular plurinational constituent assembly being carried out by the country's exploding networks of neighborhood assemblies. This is in rewriting the Constitution. Now, plurinationalism is the coexistence of two or more uh, national groups within an organized community or body of peoples. In other words, it is national unity based on inclusion, which is something that came up during our conversation yesterday with Brett Gustafson, author of Mm -hmm. Bolivia and the Age of Gas. To what extent were the protests a call Mm -hmm. for plurinationalism? And how much was the government response to calls for the plebiscite on the Constitution about making certain that plurinationalism did not happen? Is, Is that one of the major goals of either the homegrown Nazis or the major goals of the right-wing government to make certain that plurinationalism does not happen? I don't know if they would frame it that way, but certainly it's a factor. Um, And it's a factor in the process of rewriting the Constitution. Because for us, it means not just giving a voice, but giving meaningful, substantial representation to the indigenous peoples of this country, which is something that we would very much like in a new constitution, right? Um, When we organize things in the feminist movement, we always frame things as plurinational because we understand that we are not just Chileans, right? We are a country with immigrants representing other countries. We are a country with multiple indigenous peoples and that that needs to be treated seriously and not all melted into one sort of idea of a Chilean citizen, that the Chilean citizen is not the only agent in this process that needs to be considered and who has rights. You write the Aprueba, the uh, Aprueba, the Approve campaign, which, uh, despite having massive popular momentum, leaves many feeling conflicted. Again, this is written right before the vote. There is little disagreement to be found on the institutional level where leftist political parties and social organizations have declared their full-throated support for approval plus constitutional convention. The latter is one of two possible answers to the second and final question up for vote. The first being, should there be a con- should there be a rewriting of the constitution? The second being, what body? should write that new constitution. So how did the institutional left betray the goal of protesters to challenge the constitution and write a new one? So this goes back to November. So I just realized, you know, if we talked in October, this was a major landmark event that we didn't have the opportunity to discuss on your program. So in November, which was still in the heat of the protests here, right? Um, Members of both left and right-wing parties met together to make an accord. And this accord outlined a process for the plebiscite that we're having, uh, or that we just had this week, That the idea would be to make a path forward for uh, at least exploring the possibility of rewriting the constitution. And the problem is, is that the people didn't want a process that was imposed from above. The movement was not a movement of left-wing parties. Certainly members of those parties were part of the movement, but it was a movement that you could say was truly leaderless. There was not a controlling force. There was not a dominant ideology. It was a true people's uprising. And the idea that... um, these left-wing parties would impose themselves in this moment to say, we have the answer. Furthermore, sitting down with some of the most extreme of the right-wing parties, right? So that was the first big betrayal because in November, that was the moment when our popular assemblies were exploding all over the country and that people were having on the neighborhood level 
uh, town hall meetings and discussions about what they would like in a constitutional process, one that's from the bottom up. And it felt like um, the left-wing parties had stolen that, stolen the opportunity for us to do it for ourselves. So from that moment on, everyone I think felt at least a little conflicted because, okay, this process is going to happen. How do we interact with it? Is participating in this process a way of, I don't know, forgiving the government? Like, or is it a pragmatic necessity and that we it's a tool, maybe not the ideal tool, but it's a tool that we can use to continue our struggle? So that's where the conflict comes from. And it's rearing its head once again in the process of selecting the delegates that would be uh, the drafters of this new constitution. The left-wing parties are once again trying to uh, find their way back into people's hearts to rebuild their bases, but nobody has forgotten what happened not so long ago. So they're being met, of course, with a great deal of skepticism. But considering their power and the control that they do have within the government, how likely is it, do you think, that there will be a top-down constitution that co-opts the whole movement and doesn't bring the kinds of reforms and liberation that the Chilean protesters wanted? I mean, it's, it's a real possibility, and I think it'll depend on how we react to this process. So there are lots of ways that things could go wrong. Like, for example, right, the right wing could position themselves to have a disproportionate uh, percentage of delegates in the drafting process. So they could be a tiny minority uh, in the context of the actual plebiscite vote, but they might actually have a greater uh, level of representation in the conventional assembly. It's possible because of the rules imposed from the current constitution. So that's a real danger is that they're going to be able to use the process. The right wing will be able to use the process to sabotage things or to veto some of the greater reforms that people would like. Um, I would say the danger from the left wing is like much more subtle. I think that's like where the co-optation would come from is that they want things to kind of go back to normal to be able to work through the government. They want to be able to, I don't know, have a predictable political climate. Having a people who don't respect party leadership is not predictable for them. And it's very possible that um, the people will demand things that make the comfortable left-wing leadership uncomfortable. One last question for you, Bree. We've been speaking with writer Bree Busk, <clears throat> who posted the Roar magazine article, Chileans Mobilize in Advance of a Historic Plebiscite. <clears throat> Bree is an American anarchist living and working in Santiago, Chile. She currently practices her politics through her neighborhood assembly, which I want to talk about next, and the Brigada Laura Rodig CF8M, a feminist art and propaganda group that intervenes in public space through direct action. This is Bree's third appearance on This Is Hell, having been on twice last year. The last time we spoke with Bree was almost exactly a year ago to the day when we talked to her about her Roar Magazine article that was just posted at that time. Chileans stand fearless in the face of repression. As you know, Bree, because you've been on twice in the past, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. But I think this is going to fall in the final category. Our audience is going to hate your response. You write that besides the resignations of Piñera and his cabinet, this, a popular plurinational constituent assembly being carried out by countries exploding networks of neighborhood assemblies, was the single most unifying demand that arose in the context of the uprising. Bree, how long, how difficult was it to put together these neighborhood assemblies? And more importantly, you're an American can we ever have those kind of assemblies here in the United States? We've been talking about them on this show since the World Social Forum in 1999. So is that kind of thing, do you think that could ever happen in the United States? Well, uh, one thing that the past uh, few years has taught me is that it's never too late for things to change completely, right? Like, so I would say, yes, it's absolutely possible. 
But it doesn't mean that the way things are going to happen in the U.S. will be the way that things have happened historically or in other countries. It might be something really unique to the conditions and culture of people there. It might take a different form. But what made things possible here was our social fabric, that people felt like they felt a desire to be agents in, I don't know, agents in creating the world that they want to live in. And I think in the U.S., like, it's really easy for us to give in to hopelessness because we haven't had a lot of big victories in our lifetimes. So I think the idea is, is that no matter what the conditions are in the U.S., we have to start building what we want now. And the foundation is relationships, relationships in your neighborhood, relationships on the job, relationships uh, of all types, is that we need to go and have those types of communities because you can't build a movement against capitalism with a bunch of isolated individuals. Bree, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. We will be annoying you with an interview request far sooner than a year from now, I promise, because we want to follow up on this and continue reporting on what's happening in Chile. We've been speaking with writer Bree Busk, who posted the Roar magazine article, Chileans Mobilize in Advance of a Historic Plebiscite. You can find our earlier two interviews with Bree at our website, thisishell.com, when you search on her last name, Busk, B-U-S-K. Again, I cannot thank you enough for being back on the show, Bree. I always really appreciate our conversation. Uh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. All right. Take care, Brie. Keeping it real. Real deep in debt since 1996. This is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to tomorrow's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. Become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. Get exclusive access to our weekly Friday Patreon podcast. Streams live, 10 a.m. Chicago time, and his podcast at the same place shortly after, patreon.com slash thisishell, every Friday. This week on Patreon, we are going in the Wayback Machine, way back to May 13th, 2006, an interview we did on yesterday's topic, Bolivia, with Ben Dangle, author of The Price of Fire, Resource Wars and Social Movements in Bolivia. Ben had just posted the article, Bolivia, the Wealth Underground. I think he still writes for Upside Down World. I can't remember. But that article was posted at Z Magazine's website back then. And it's an interesting conversation to return to because without the advantage of yesterday's guest, Brett Gustafson, that without his advantage of hindsight, the talk is about what was happening then as the rise of Avo was taking place. And it's, you know, some of these things age well, some things don't age well, but it's an interesting perspective to consider from a 2006 point of view. Also on tomorrow's Patreon podcast, I'm going to give my prediction on what will happen in next Tuesday's election for President of the United States. And that's only you can only hear that on exclusively on Patreon. Patreon.com slash this is hell. I'm not going to share it on the show. If you want to hear my probably horrible prediction, if you want to know how I think the vote will go down, you have to subscribe on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. Look, not that my predicting the skills are all that great are you kidding me I'm definitely in the red in my gambling career I mean I get some right Rod Blagojevich being forced to step down as Illinois governor I made that prediction the day after he was elected Trump winning in 2016 but I've also been very wrong Gore beating Bush in 2000 in January of this year I said Joe Biden would not be the Democratic Party's nominee for president because I figured that would be political suicide for the party well We'll find out next Tuesday, won't we? But you can only hear that 2006 interview on Bolivia with Ben Dangle and my predictions for election night by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. In a few minutes, Jeff Dorchin will be delivering a moment of truth. During this week's moment, uh, Jeff takes another stab at the advertising culture. Producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. Alex, do you want to give any more of our responses that we've had to our question from hell this week, which is, how are you frightening children in your neighborhood this weekend? Yeah, how are you frightening children in your neighborhood this weekend? Joe B. says, by telling them that it's all downhill from here. <laughs> Arnell G. says, after all the horrifying crap that's happened in 2020, there's nothing I can do to make them more terrified than they already are. And finally, Kim G. says, classic, candy apples with razor blades prank as I lecture them on monoculture farming. <laughs> 
<laughs> I like that one. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can email it to us. You can tweet it to us. And the person who has our favorite answer to this week's question of hell, question from hell, wins the new gray on black This Is Hell t-shirt, which you can see at thisishell.com when you click on support. We got another email yesterday, this one from Paolo, who writes, Dear Chuck and Alex, I finally became a Patreon subscriber. Sorry for the delay, although it really only took five minutes to set up. I send you greetings from... Kazakhstan, where I've been living for most of the recent years. I also became a Patreon patron for to support one of the few independent media outlets here, of which I am only a reader, Vlazd KZ, V-L-A-S-T-K-Z. As you can imagine, the media freedom situation in Kazakhstan isn't that great. Just wanted to send you written love and offer some of my time for any remote help you need. For transcriptions, which I've done many of, I have used the app Otter for English language sources. Otter has diminished room for its free version, but it could be at least partly used and save some transcribers some time. I've also done lots of archiving work for a newspaper in the past, plugging articles into a WordPress that became our archive. For now, let me send another thing. Hugs. Paolo. And man, would it be great if we had somebody working on our show who lives in Kazakhstan. Thanks, Paolo. We'll be getting in contact with both you and Calvin soon. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell, and I know you have. Have hate on the line. One, two, you know what to do. One more time. One moment, please. <laughs> Take your time, Jeff. A certain reckoning. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. I avoid advertisements as much as possible. I avoid them like the plague, which has been good practice for the plague. I've missed all the commercials my friends have been in because of that avoidance. When I listen to podcasts, I scrub past pitches for absolutely anything. But Hulu makes you sit through the ads. I mute them, but sometimes I'm not quick enough. Thus, many's the time I've heard, at so-and-so, we believe. Every company pulls this crap at some point, no matter how nonsensical it is. At White Claw, we believe. There's no at. You're a beverage. And you don't believe in anything but making money. At Clear Blue. We believe, what do you mean at clear blue? You're a stick women pee on to see if they're pregnant. You're not a place. There's no brick and mortar house of pee sticks. And what can you possibly believe? At pee stick, we believe in the pH level of urine. You believe in selling pee sticks. You don't have any other beliefs because you aren't human, regardless of what the Supreme Court has said in the past. You are an agreement to peddle pee-activated, color-changing material housed in plastic for the profit of your owners and part owners. You are a legal construction designed to be a financial instrument. That's all you'll ever be. Give up your stupid dreams of being a real boy, Pinocchio. It's not gonna happen. I've gone off before about advertising, commercial advertising, how it's a waste of education dollars, because that's what it is, bad, poisonous education. A commercial is a 15 to 60 second lesson on acquisitiveness and shallow values. It's school for consumers, and most of it is either outright lies, id-tapping fantasies, or dramas meant to communicate insecurity. Sometimes I'll catch a radio ad out of the corner of my ear, and sometimes they say some made-up statistic reassures me about the future, and then suddenly I realize what's happened, what I've bought into, and out of shame at being such a gullible sucker, I want to stab myself in the brain. The amount of money spent on advertising is hard to get a grip on. There are figures that represent ad purchases, but the limits of an ad purchase are murky. Is it the money a company pays for advertising space? Is it the money a company spends paying the ad company to make the ad? Is it a combination of the two? Figures range from $214 billion to $512 billion spent on advertising, all the way up to the astronomical figure of $3.4 trillion that advertising contributed to the U.S. GDP in 2014, from a study released by a 
Consortium of Advertisers in 2015, a group determined to prove how important it was for the government not to tax advertising. Advertising contributed $3.4 trillion to the U.S. GDP in 2014, comprising 19% of the nation's total economic output. So about one-fifth of our economy is tied up in this monstrous school of lies. Okay, I can live with that. Each dollar spent on advertising expenses generates nearly $19 of economic output that would not have otherwise existed. Wait, how, how would that work? I've heard this idea of dollars generating other dollars before, but to me it always sounds like some kind of unholy alchemy. I'll explain. In 2014, advertising accounted for $5.8 trillion in overall consumer sales, totaling 16% of all sales activity in the U.S. and supporting 20 million or 14% of the 142 million jobs in the U.S. in 2014. Wait, there's only 142 million jobs in a nation of 350 million people? Not I know some are too old or young or imprisoned or otherwise job incompatible to work, but like more than half the population out of work. Okay, maybe, but I, I think we're short a few jobs. I wonder if that's a feature or a bug of capitalism. Every $1 million spent on annual advertising expenses supports 67 American jobs. Hey, that's roughly an average of $15,000 per job. Not a very high take-home for the worker. And remember that some workers are taking home much more than the average, meaning most workers are taking home much less than the average. Every direct advertising job supported another 34 jobs across all industries. Wait, really? That has got to be an extremely loose definition of supported. How does someone making less than $15,000 support themselves, much less the employment of anyone else? 34 people? Didn't anyone check these figures? What does this advertising worker buy? Use coffee grounds from street urchins living in cardboard boxes? So not only do advertisers lie to us, they lie to themselves and the government, and the lies are everywhere. Yelp reviews our advertisements, and in addition to the reviews provided for free by us idiots, people get paid to write reviews. Yeah, some reviews are fake. There are tens of thousands of people writing good reviews on Yelp and Google for money. And since that's true, why wouldn't some people take money to write articles praising ballot propositions, like Prop 22, that might have a damaging effect on the prospects of eventually forcing corporations to actually treat their workers relatively decently. <clears throat> decently. The USA has become like a dodgy carnival in London in the 1800s, where everywhere you looked were touts angling for your shillings and quid, or whatever, trying to pry your farthings from your fist, while everywhere lurked pickpockets and cut purses of every stripe, employing every possible strategy of guile. If at the end of the day and a night of taking in the freak shows, fraudulent spiritual and scientific demonstrations, and eating lard pies laced with chunks of barbershop patrons, you ended up alive, albeit robbed of all your clothing, recovering from a surreptitious poisoning by a cunning boy who seduced you disguised as a girl, or vice versa, who's left you naked and missing a hand, an eye, and all your teeth, being picked at by geese at dawn in the fecal muck of the Thames at low tide, well, you considered yourself damn lucky, sunshine. Oh, we're headed for a reckoning. This species is headed for a reckoning. This civilization is headed for a reckoning. And these professional liars and teachers of the art of lying, indoctrinators into the church and army and bureaucracy of lying, oh, are they headed for a reckoning. Here at Home Depot, they say to me in their siren sing-song tones, we believe that a good stabbing in the brain is the best way to free yourself from this multidimensional web of lies whose fibers wrap themselves around the earth a thousand times before they penetrate your flesh and weave themselves into your nervous and limbic systems. Stabbing yourself in the brain is liberation. It's a vacation. You owe it to yourself to stab yourself in the brain and not with any old ice pick, with a DeWalt high tensile carbon steel ice pick, now on sale. Buy a dozen for Christmas. They make great stocking stuffers. Imagine that. Imagine me, a lowly gig worker on vacation. 
here at Postmates, we believe that every day should be a vacation. Not a paid vacation, just a vacation where you drive around the neighborhood, seeing the sights, and picking up and delivering food for your friends. That reckoning's a-coming. And a stabby reckoning it will be, sunshine. Have a jabby, stabby reckoning during this year's militia-enforced Christian season of lies. May your rulers be archaic and scabby, and may all your reckonings be stabby. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. Oh, that was very entertaining, my friend. I really, really hate advertising, and it's it's infecting my life even more now because of the pandemic, because I'm constantly trying to distract myself with media, and I'm constantly seeing advertising. I, I don't want to see. It's very, There's a really disturbing uh, commercial for taking a pill so it can help men pee, and it's just a guy in front of an audience like in a theater with a huge screen behind him showing images of fountains and hoses and anything that's just gushing water throughout the ad. And it just makes me laugh every time and makes me want to pee. But Jeff, did you ever, go ahead. Did you ever see that, that SNL skit about the, guy, about the uh, super pee pill? No. Where the guy was like super uh, – He it was Jason Sudeikis and he was like super enthused about how – Strong, how powerful his pee stream was going to be and how it was going to be like ropey braids of pee. Oh, gross. It was hilarious. <laughs> All was right. Funny. Now that we've talked enough about urine, Jeffy. Yes? Stay beautiful. Okay. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is Hell. Alex, do you have the rest of this week's, uh, of our listeners' answers to this week's question from Hell? Oh, yeah. Via email, DM, et cetera, et cetera. Adib K says, talking to them about the future of America. <laughs> oh, yeah. This uh, question from hell, by the way, is uh, what are you telling children in your neighborhood this weekend to scare them? Jason S. says, smashing pumpkins and a poons full of sugar. It helps the medicine go. Hmm. Adam B. says, I'm going with the Jason Van Dyke costume. <laughs> Who's Jason Van Dyke? He was the killer of Laquan McDonald. Oh, boy. Okay. <laughs> uh, Fred B. says, I'm sending them to thisishell.com. <laughs> Uh, Timecuck says, I'm going to pull a big and turn them all into Tom Hanks. <laughs> and finally, how are you scaring children in your neighborhood this weekend? Neil C says, just tell them late capitalism has forced God to cash out and hire private security. I like Joe saying by telling them it's all downhill from here. Kim saying classic candy apples with razor blades prank as I lecture them on monoculture uh, farming. I liked uh, David's answer about smoker's cough. That was and, my favorite, too. And Karen's reply, that's also how you scare everyone in the Aldi. I, I think it's kind of unfair to give it to two people because that's uh, it was the combination of the two ant, uh, responses that was so great. Uh, Cody saying by telling them their parents believe in QAnon. Uh, Mason saying slowly and carefully explaining to them the exploitation and suffering that went into making your chocolate bars. And the super complicated one from Jim by dressing up as William Barr, Attorney General William Barr, playing the baby shark dance on the bagpipes while dragging along a mechanical Rudy Giuliani head whose eyes seem to look at you no matter what angle you look at it. So, I don't know, Alex, what do you want to go with? You want to go with David? You want to go with Jim? Which one do you like the best? Uh, I love Smoker's Cough. I do, too. And, there, yeah, so we're going to go with David. David, you are the winner of this week's Question from Hell. You will be receiving a This Is Hell gray on black T-shirt in the mail shortly. All we need is your mailing address, and you can send that to us via a message on Facebook. Congratulations, David. You are the winner of this week's Question from Hell. My answer to this week's Question from Hell is... How are you frightening children in your neighborhood this weekend? Uh, the same way I do every day, by walking around with mirrored aviator sunglasses on. I don't know what it is about that style of sunglasses, but kids really freak out when they see me wearing them. Or maybe it's just me. Maybe it's not the sunglasses at all. Maybe it's that I never comb my hair, that I, I look like I'm hmm, not necessarily living in a permanent shelter. Maybe my sheer presence is frightening to kids. I don't know, but I will be frightening kids the way I do every day, just by being me. Thanks, everyone, for sending in your answers to this week's question from hell. We also want to thank Brett for his tithing-like commitment to This Is Hell and showing his support by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Alex, who's on Monday's show? Do we know yet? Uh, no. Still working on it. Maybe this insane Foxconn in Wisconsin story. Maybe the U.S. military in Burkina Faso. Maybe abolishing the Supreme Court. 
We don't know. Got a bunch of requests out there. Uh, we should know hopefully by the end of the day. But we do know that Jeffy's going to be doing a moment on Thursday. What about Tuesday yeah, and I got, Wednesday? I got Tuesday and Wednesday booked. So uh, if you're wondering, what is this is all going to do on Tuesday? Election day. We're going to be talking with Ruth Kinna about her book, The Government of No One, The Theory and Practice of Anarchism. <laughs> See, this then, a, that's a good election day interview. And then uh, on Wednesday, we're going to be talking with Hadass Thier about her article, or sorry, her book, book. A People's Guide to Capitalism, An Introduction to Marxist <laughs> Economics. See, because we're celebrating celebrating the American electoral process. We start every week's live streaming shows here at thisishell.com with Alex revealing this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is beet juice and green juice. Thanks to all of this week's guests, including writer and Milwaukee resident Emma Roller, author of The New Republic Story, How Wisconsin Became a Bastion of White Supremacy. Thanks to writer and urban policy specialist Diana Lind, author of Brave New Home, Our Future in Smarter, Simpler, Happier Housing. Thanks to yesterday's guest, anthropologist Brett Gustafson. He is author of Bolivia in the Age of Gas. And finally, thanks to today's guest, writer Bree Busk, who boasted the... Uh, Roar Magazine article, Chileans mobilized in advance of a historic plebiscite just prior to last weekend's vote. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon when we will be playing our 2006 interview with Ben Dangle on Bolivia. And I will be giving you my bold predictions on what will happen election night. But you can only hear that conversation and my predictions by subscribing at patreon.com slash this is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz producing today's show. Alex, Jerry, Alex, thank you so much for training up all of our new producers. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on today's show, on all of this week's shows. That's by sitting down in the lowest position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, everybody's stupid. Randy, like a sailor. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.